This episode of Creativity in Captivity is sponsored by the Curtis Theater in Brea, California. Presenting Dawn Reed's The Never Too Late Show on Saturday, May 11th. Tickets are available at the Curtis Theater website. Get ready for insight and inspiration on the creative process from an array of artists, writers, and visionaries on May 9th, when Season 7 of Creativity in Captivity kicks off. In the meantime, please enjoy over 150 episodes hosted by Pat Hazel with a stable of creative guests in our listening lounge at creativityincaptivity.fun. This is Creativity in Captivity. I'm Pat Hazel. Delighted today to be having a conversation with a creative director, feminist researcher, and writer who resides at the intersection of art, technology, and social justice. Alice has worked with Magic Leap, the Gates Foundation, and Penguin Books. On this episode, she shares what it's like to collaborate with the band U2, offers insights on her time developing Micah, the first digital human, and she encourages me to join her in becoming an accidental technologist. Coming up, my dialogue with writer and forward thinker Alice Rowe in London. That spark of electricity, a skipping stone that sets you free, you're captive to a mystery, the curse of creativity. La 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 la, la 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 la. Hello. Hey, Alice. Hey. I'm super excited to have you. I am super excited to be here. I feel kind of tingly fizzy to be ending my day with you in this conversation, Pat. So thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome. And I I must pay you the compliment that I know for a fact I'm not the smartest person in the room today. Well, I'm not taking that either. So so it's got to be the listener, eh? That's that's the perfect person to put this on. I I love it. (laughs) Well, you, you have so many interesting areas for me. I'm not exactly sure where to start, but my producer, Amanda Rosenberg, simply said to me, I think it would be great if you spoke with the creator of the first digital human. (laughs) This person has got to win every show and tell contest that ever was. So for the listener, let's explain to them what that means. Yeah. And I mean, I really share that sentiment, Pat, about not knowing where to start because when Amanda asked me to be on this podcast, I didn't quite know how to describe what I do. So yeah, the digital human is a fantastic place to start. So I was working for Magic Leap, which is a spatial computing company. So it's when the digital world and the physical world come together as one. And at the time, I described myself as a feminist creative. So I was working to activate women's history kind of, yeah, on a global scale. I was working for U2 and the Gates Foundation, trying to really empower us all to see ourselves in women's history. Because of that, this spatial computing company Magic Leap invited me to meet their digital human because they were like, we have to get a feminist creative on this team because she's gendered female. And so I met this digital human and it was was quite a difficult experience in a way because I saw all of the risks about how digital humans, particularly gendered female, they could be positioned as very servile, they could perpetuate negative ways of relating to women. And I just felt like, gosh, if handled wrongly, This could be really, really damaging for women and girls and from a feminist perspective. But if we place art and culture at the absolute center of this digital human's character, her emotions, her way of relating to each other, we could have a chance at creating better relationships with digital humans. No, that sounds vague, but in a nutshell, that's what we tried to do. No, and her name is Micah. Yeah. 
And I'm fascinated by all the choices that you have to make. And you just explained the beginning of that. But mm. you have to make choices for good, many for good. But even yeah. things like a hairstyle and fashion, you want to be sure that doesn't get in the way of the intent and the purpose. In, in many ways, you're trying to infuse humanity into yes. artificial intelligence. Yeah. You're so right. I love that. Infuse humanity into, yeah, she was embodied AIs, like AI that lived in a kind of body, which is really scary for most people. It's like when most people would meet Micah, the instant reaction, I think, was fear. And sometimes that wouldn't come across as like hostility or um, disrespect. But what I saw was, was fear. And so I was like, okay, if people are generally afraid of embodied AI, big innovation does make us scared as humanity. And the way that we've got through it in my kind of little look back over history, was through art and culture, through plays, through books, through paintings. That's how we got on board with new, big, scary ideas. So we decided that we would base elements of experiences of Micah on the Dada artist, Hannah Hock. And so if we could put art and art practice and kind of a Dada mentality into this digital human, how would that change the way that people related to her? That is how we try to infuse her with humanity, to kind of really provoke the user to relate to her in artistic terms, in creative terms, in kind of vulnerable terms. Well, but I would say the impossible task is how to take artificial intelligence and give it a human heart. Yeah. Because that is the scary thing of our robots going to take over for us. Totally. <laughs> and yeah. this is a yeah. thing where the computer can literally take over our lives. You know, mm -hmm. the narrative we see in movies is also part of developing that fear. Yeah. You're so right. When I was, and I'm no longer creative director there, but when I was at, of Micah, everybody would ask me if I'd be at an event or even if I'd be out, people would just go straight and talk about Blade Runner. They'd be like, oh my gosh, they just have this list of films. And the worst thing was, I was like, gosh, you know what? It, a little bit is. Because when we have science fiction so heavy in our conception of what these things do, sometimes engineers, without necessarily meaning to, just assume that that is what we as a public want. They just think, but yeah, of course, we all want you know, whatever, whatever trope is in a science fiction film. And actually, that's quite lazy. And so as a creative, I wanted to be like, okay, how can we rupture this narrative of digital women designed to passively serve? And then if we're not going to do that, what's the other creative potential? And that's where we really focused our attention. I think Twyla Tharp was the one that I, I heard say something that, that art is competitive. There's, there's a rebellion, right? You're competing uh -huh. with yourself. You're competing with the past. You're competing with the future mm -hmm. because you have to ask questions. It's a special war zone is what she said, where first you make the rules and then you test the consequences. Wow. Right? If you do that lazy thing that you talked about, if you see a futuristic movie and you go, oh, everybody wants to wear the same color jumpsuit yeah. so they don't have to pick out their clothes, whatever, yeah. whatever it is, if that's then the way you write the narrative, you yeah. get nothing new. Nothing totally. comes from that. That's so interesting what you just said about competition and competition with ourselves. And I'm wondering if you don't mind, but in your career, have you found that you've been in competition with yourself more than you've been in competition with others? Or do you think that competition is outward as well as internal? That's a really excellent question, by the way. Uh -huh. And I, I, no, and I think I can frame it for myself. I can't yeah. speak for others, mm -hmm. but I always decided I was going to run my race against my own best time and against my own last idea. So I feel like there's plenty of pie for everybody. I don't look at another person and go, oh, I should have that opportunity because they have it, or I should have all that money because they have it. Mm -hmm. That to me was not 
an attainable game to play because all you do is set yourself up for disappointment. Yeah. In fact, there's a word that I often use called anticipointment. That's good. (laughs) Anticipointment is when you anticipate something where there's no possible successful result, but then to be disappointed in it. Right. So when somebody lives in that state, it's like, I don't, I didn't get everything I wanted. But I think if you're proactive on, oh, I'm just going to beat my last time, or Mm -hmm. I'm going to do this a better way, or I want this to live up to my last album, if you were a songwriter, that sort of thing. That has been healthy, but it also means that you have to be very self-propelling because it's super easy to nap or to be depressed and say, Mm -hmm. what are you expecting from me? I think you have to develop a discipline for creation. If you make it a habit and it's something that you would disappoint yourself not to do the way some people do with exercise or specific nutrition, at least to me, that's how to set the table for a successful creative life. And that makes so much sense as well, because when I feel in competition with somebody else, it generally puts me on edge. It makes me tense. It makes me the opposite of what I need to be when I'm thinking creatively. I'm trying to remind myself that recently, because in the context I'm working now with augmented and virtual realities, I'm trying to think a lot about, A, not saying I so much, and more saying we, but thinking about how we could co-create experiences with each other rather than kind of have one creator and how I as a creative holds other people's creativity in a way that doesn't make my own dominate. But it's hard when you're used to kind of working alone and developing ideas alone. It's an interesting journey, but it's not easy. And I wish it was because that would be so much better. Well, the other thing I'll say about competition is when you're Mm -hmm. in a foot race with someone, if you're behind, you're chasing them to catch up and you go the direction they're going. That's a path that you don't necessarily want or need to be on, but because that is your your pursuit is to be ahead of them on their path. And when you're ahead of somebody in a foot race and you look back over your shoulder, it's not beneficial to you. It doesn't make yeah. you go faster. You know what I mean? So I guess that it's very healthy to have competition, yeah. but it's better to always, I think, step into a framework where you're competing with somebody that makes your game better. Mm-hmm. don't play somebody that you can beat all the time because then you're not going to grow. Get on the other side of the tennis court of somebody who makes you play better and by yeah. thus your game improves. Yeah, I love that idea about, yeah, if you're chasing somebody, you're walking down their path, that's already been cut for them. But to see that the other way around and think about the absolute giants of the industry and the creative thinkers that I so trust their path and sometimes I want to be following them because that's a beautiful space that they have created for me to walk down. And so I suppose it's in, yeah, in what vein are you walking down somebody else's path? Are you chasing them so you can elbow them out the way or are you walking there with gratitude? And I kind of like that. Now, I, I really do think that it it is worthwhile to be inspired by others and mm. to learn from them and to see things are possible. We often talk about that with our guests is that sometimes you don't know what's possible until someone else does it. True. And so to dream beyond that is kind of a special thing that creatives when they give themselves permission, because we have a tendency to be surrounded by naysayers. People don't really understand the capacity of thinking up something new. So they go, what are you wasting your time for that? There's no money in that, or there's Mm -hmm. whatever reason. And they'd say it oftentimes in a loving, supportive way. You have parents or a spouse or a friend who says, why are you wasting your time on something? And they don't understand that time time is part of the investment 
yeah. in order to get to the bigger picture. And sometimes, Pat, sometimes for me, an idea will go absolutely nowhere and I have nothing to show for it at the end. But the way it made me feel in order to get to that point was absolutely worth it. But that fizzy aliveness that you get when you're developing something, you think, oh my word, this means something. This makes meaning. If you're on that journey bodily, sometimes it doesn't need to have something to show to everyone to validate that feeling. And that's part of the creative process. And that's something I'm grappling with at the moment. It's like, if an idea doesn't go somewhere physical, tangible, does that mean it wasn't worth having in the first place? And I think absolutely no, I think. You, what do you no, I, I, I'm with you. Here's yeah. I refer to, in particularly in relationships, let's say, mm. this is is that sometimes you have to have a personal winter. You have to be yeah. in a time where it's not all spring and flowers yeah. to realize how important it is to invest in that. Yeah. To I had some difficult times after a marriage that I thought, this is the worst, longest, dark, gray tunnel, yeah. uh, and I want it to be over now. But yeah. the truth is it allowed me to explore myself and what was important as opposed to being reflective of that relationship or that other person. Mm -hmm. It turned the attention to me saying, oh, what's important to me? What is my purpose? And by doing that, by building self, you attract the necessary means to have proper relationships. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this isn't meant to be a a therapy show, but but I think we as creatives often think we're working alone. You, You talked about being alone. Well, we're alone together. Alone together. That's lovely. Yeah. We're in separate parts of the world experiencing the same thing. And while we can't walk down the hall and meet at the water cooler yeah. and say, ah, oh, you'll never believe what happened to me. Mm-hmm. It's through our art that we do see, mm-hmm. we hear a song that we say, that's my love song. Which brings me back to your development mm-hmm. of Micah as a digital human, which is that there are so many complex emotions and facial expressions and how do you decide which ones to leave out or keep? Yeah, I think, so Roni, who was the CEO of Magic Leap, that was his genius move, or he had many genius moves, but that was one of them, is to realize that, yeah, if you're going to create a female digital human or a digital human, gender female, you've got to have women on the creative team who are thinking about exactly that. Like, what does a facial expression say? What does a way that you stand say to the user? And then most importantly, how is the user then going to respond back to that bodily language? And so I was working on it with Prudence Fenton, who is also the connection between us. And we were just thinking about how can a body ooze confidence and dignity and a kind of independence. And it was really, to be completely honest, the absolute opposite of this kind of history of representation that we have been completely um, inundated with. And so the big thing for me and forgive me for getting a little bit theoretical here, but there's a um, feminist film theorist called Laura Mulvey, and she talks about the male gaze and, and being the possessor of the male gaze. And I felt like when I met Micah for the first time, every single person that met her would become the possessor of the male gaze. Like that was the power dynamic that was set up because she never looked back. She never returned the gaze. She would just look down and you could visually consume her. She was a little bit coy. And so that was the key thing. It's like, look, back. We needed this digital human to return that gaze and to disrupt the the male gaze, as Laura Mulvey describes it. That was what we did right off the get-go. Well, the small samples that I saw online, the eye contact is really amazing. It's really Mm -hmm. amazing how it feels, which is a big part of empathy for anybody to be sure that Mm -hmm. they're being seen or being heard 
because yeah. there's a, an attention being paid is yeah. really a magic trick. Yeah, it's really special. Yeah. I totally understand that. And I imagine that they probably are trying to figure out what kind of voice to give her and mm. what does that, what's the tone of that. And I do understand from reading a little bit about it that it is not to be mistaken with Alexa or Siri. It's not yeah. giving you directions or yeah. turning your music up. Yeah. This is something that is actually infused with background and history and to help you create music yeah. as opposed to play your song for you. Exactly. And so UNESCO brought out this great report. It had such a good name. It was called I'd Blush If I Could. And it was about the damaging impact of series and Alexas and other automated voice assistants in our homes. And they really spelled it out in terms of like, these things are damaging for us in our homes, women and girls growing up around this technology. And so, yeah, with, with Micah, I love what you just said about the vision for her. She doesn't do this now, but the vision around like, yeah, creating culture rather than just like bringing it to us. And we took a piece to Sundance Film Festival where Micah would send the audience away with different women from film history that they need to go away and research. And then she'd send them a little email about it. And so I love this idea that Micah was spreading women's history throughout Sundance Film Festival, like permeating through. Yes, that was a sweet example of how we did that. But I love that you picked up on that. Well, that's a good transition to something that maybe you can share more. You yes. are the founder of Her Story, the project that is developing it's something you founded in 2014 it was and the guiding principle was if you can't see it how can you be it so you were using arts and culture to engage people you know of all genders to know more about women's history tell me a little bit about that project and let's talk a little about how you're using your creativity and your voice as a feminist mm -hmm. to make that all come to life fantastic yeah, so her story, you got it exactly right. It's driven by this maxim, if I can't see it, how can I be it? And you're right, in 2014, I had this really profound experience where I was actually like half asleep and I was like a little bit listening to the radio and a little bit trying to sleep and something else. And we've got this program in the UK called Women's Hour and they had this piece on Women's Hour and it was about this exhibition around women's history in the Women's Library in London and this song from Mary Poppins was playing over the top. And it's a little bit embarrassing to tell you, but I'm going to tell you. And the song goes, our daughters, daughters will adore us. And I'll sing in grateful chorus, well done, sister suffragette. And I woke up and I was like, oh my gosh, I have never felt well done, sister suffragette. I've never realised that I am those daughters, daughters, daughters. I'm not singing in grateful chorus. I'm literally just living my life as if it's just my right that I just get to do all this stuff. And I you know, get to go to university and walk around without a chaperone and all these things. I get to vote. And then I realized there have been so many women who've come before that literally enabled me to live the life that I did and do. So I started researching women's history. Everywhere I went, I would like Google, like who lived here, who did stuff here. And I tell you, Pat, the physical difference it made in my body was incredible. I stood taller. I felt more present in my conversations. The kind of confidence that it gave me really quickly was actually quite profound. So I wanted to try and work creatively to give this experience to more people. So I got an opportunity to work with the band U2 on their world tour. And they were doing the Joshua Tree tour. And every single country that we would go to, we would curate a different set of women that were huge projected behind the band. So if you had the band were like the size of my finger, you'd have the images were like, oh, I can't even tell you because I'm so bad at maths, but so huge. Those projection screens sometimes are three stories tall. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Exactly. 
And so we would do these legacy maps. So we would take a particular theme and we would go right, right, right to the back in history. And then we would end with contemporary women now who have kind of been born out of this history. One of my favourites was to see the um, guitarist, Sister Rosetta Tharp, like the godmother of rock and roll. And she was huge on screen. And the Edge, the guitarist of U2, was tiny, 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 playing underneath Sister Rosetta Tharp. And I was like, that is what this is about. And it was just so, so special. That was yeah, one of my absolute favourite house story projects. I think just the, the collaboration itself and the idea that they brought you on the team is a very progressive idea. The, yeah. the, the notion that they would help amplify the voice of women yeah. from the past, which this is the unfortunate thing about so much of history and yeah. and why her story is so important. And I un- I understand the, the play in the word that you've developed there, uh-huh. but it is that when history books were written and left out creators from other races, from other genders, the ideas get buried and get credited to people with other egos or other intentions that in some ways are insecure, right? They're written from a standpoint of they want to be the hero of the story. And so they don't credit other people. I I personally, when I do a theatrical show, the cheapest thing I can do is give credit in the program to anybody who helped in any way. And it it, it means so much Mm -hmm. not to pretend it's your own idea and that you don't have a collaborative team around you. Uh, and and I imagine that in the AI business, nobody's building this thing on their own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there are so many things that you just said then that are so, everything you say, Pat, makes my head fizz and want to respond. But when you, what you said about the um, the history books, it's true because there's two issues, right? There's the fact that if you write it and you have the same person effectively writing it in terms of race and gender and class, if you have that viewpoint the whole way through, you are only going to get one version, which is absolutely an issue. And then the other thing is around how it felt as a child, as a young girl, experiencing education in that way and the impact that it had on me. So when I would learn about maths and the UK school system is a bit different, but in maths, we'd learn about Pythagoras. In English, we'd learn about Shakespeare. In science, we'd learn about Watson and Crick. And it's like, okay, so where do I fit into this? On like World Book Day, I've come dressed in a beard. The amount of times I wore a beard at school was crazy. But whenever in school a boy would wear a skirt or a dress, it was only for like our, we have like red nose day, comic relief. It was a joke. It was only funny. So it's like, it's right that women dress up as men for like history, but men dress up as women when it's a joke. And that really felt, uh, reflecting back on that at school, it's like, no, that has to change. And I think it has actually in the years that I've not been at school. And then the other thing I wanted to say was, you're so right about you too, because not only did they show their allyship in terms of projection, but the way that they worked with me and the fact that they gave me, in the most cases, creative freedom and they really trusted my research and it didn't become a kind of um, who's who of rock and roll, like, you know, swooping in your friends, but actually they genuinely wanted to hear and also be educated on. I got the chance to explain to the band who the women were it felt really deep. It didn't feel uh, tokenistic or like a PR thing. It felt like a really deep engagement. And so I, and I always like to say that because I feel like it's important. The way in which something is given is as important as the thing itself. Yeah, the intentions are, are critical. In, mm-hmm. And especially as we grow, as we learn more about each other. I think words sometimes become the problem, that people get triggered by a word. And a word like feminist can scare people. Mm-hmm. Because they think of it as a one thing. They don't mm-hmm. think of it as a, a movement to shine a light 
on so much deserved attention. You know, they, mm-hmm. they kind of hang their hat on what they think that word means. And I think yeah. it's really, really hard to change people's perspective. And it's like what you said earlier about creative competition. You said there's not a finite amount of pie. It's like if you are on board with women's rights, that doesn't mean inherently that you are taking away men's rights. You know, it's not a kind of take and give thing. It's like there is enough world for, for us all to be equal in it, you know. And so, yeah, it's a nice loop back. Yeah. And creativity is one of those things that I believe that the more you do and the more you make, the more there is. It yeah. actually creates a greater amount of it when you start to yeah. give open the door to other folks to be creative. Now yeah. you were influenced, I think, by a art installation, The Dinner Party, which was Judy Chicago's work. Yes. Um, and yeah. that was a sort of on the forefront of feminist art and mm-hmm. I believe is installed at the Brooklyn Museum. But tell me a little bit about how that impacted your history project. Yeah. You're right. The Dinner Party is at the Brooklyn Museum. And I went there a couple of years ago and it was and I ba- at that time I based my whole creative practice around this artwork and I went there and it was closed and I was like oh my gosh I've come all the way from England and I can't even go in and the lovely lovely assistant curator that I was meeting snuck me in and I got to look around the dinner party on my own and I was just like this is exactly right and it's basically this big table in a huge triangle and at each of the different place settings for this table is a runner and a chalice and a ceramic plate that represents a different woman from history. So Judith Chicago describes it almost like the alternative Last Supper. It's like all of the women that have never have never been celebrated together. And so you walk through it and it's like this kind of absolute immersion in the idea of her story. Um, and yeah, it was really important to me because I started my career with her story running these workshops in schools where I would recreate this um, dinner party in school and then the young people would each turn up at the table and present as a different woman from history and they would write the script themselves and they would put their own inflections into what they think is important and it was yeah a kind of participatory workshop but it's interesting because now I work in augmented and virtual realities and I think so often about how spectacular a virtual reality Judy Chicago's dinner party would be you know there's some artwork that you think oh that would be so brilliant and with the medium of augmented and virtual realities really speaks to that like co-creation, inhabiting it with the producer rather than being a consumer. And it like, I think it's the next natural step. So that would be exciting. Yeah, I can actually see a v- virtual dinner party. I can see a table setting, but I can also see the idea that you might have a circular screen on the, at the facial level at, at each dining chair, mm. where instead of it being presented one-on-one, perhaps it's a conversation between those women. That would be amazing, yeah. What would that conversation be like? And you could yeah. certainly infuse the real facts of what they yeah. developed or designed. Yeah. Yeah, that's that to me is the good use of any kind of a virtual reality yeah. world. I, I guess that's a part I don't understand. I have kids that might put on that headset or yeah. something and um, explain to me that uh, the sort of the augmented reality notion, because yeah. I think life itself is <laughs> there's enough to explore enough. Yeah. that, that to sit in a chair and explore it through the ice is, is confusing yeah. to me. So, I'm so, so happy we get bring me part. on the journey. Yeah. I'm, I'm up for this journey. Pat. Okay. So just today, literally today, somebody said to me, so actually, for a bit of context, I'm currently Augmented and Virtual Reality's lead for Atlantic Institute, which is a social justice organization. 
which is trying to address the root causes of systemic inequities with global leaders from around the world. We all, wait, all think about how can AR and VR be used for social good? And just today, somebody said to me, I think what you were just thinking, they said, virtual reality is like coffee without the caffeine. You know, why recreate this stuff? It's what you just said, enough world going on. My belief is that the moments when AR and VR make sense is when they make the impossible possible. That's when it works. If we're just trying to recreate life and do a watered down version of reality, that is lazy, that is boring, I don't see the point of it. If, however, it can elevate you into a different space where you can relate with people differently, you can experience space differently, you can experience emotion and touch differently. Oh my gosh, it's this brand new complete game changer. So there is an experience, Pat, that if you, I know, as much as I know about you now, through this conversation in my research report, I know you're going to love it. It's an experience that was made by my friends at Magic Leap, particularly um, Steve Mangia and Mike Tucker, and with the band Suga Ross. And it was basically, it's about music. And it's about um, augmented reality. And you basically touch, you, you touch sound. It's all like synesthesia. You can manipulate what you see to change what you hear. That is all pre-recorded um, Sugaros music, but actually you're generating your own music through the way that you're physically touching it. And when I experienced that, I was like, oh my gosh, this is a collapsing of the creative mediums. This is no longer music and this is no longer kind of visual culture. These two things are coming together as one. That's what AR and VR can do. If we're just using it to be like, oh gosh, yes, I'm at the Louvre now. I'm in Paris. Wonderful. That's boring to me. And also we should all get the right to go to the Louvre in Paris. We should not say to each other, oh, let's experience this like slightly worse version. So if AR and VR can enable us to experience the impossible, that means it's good. If you feel like it's boring and you could do that anyway, if you walk down the street a bit, that's when it's bad. Well, I, I had the pleasure of talking to BD Wolf. Uh, on mm. this show, and she had some really interesting and amazing ways that she presented music in a way that virtual reality presentation made yeah. not only the music come to life, but the sound come to life. And I did see applications that excited me yeah. where I go, oh, this is a really purpose-driven experience yeah. Yeah. that is imprinting the music onto my brain and my soul, exactly. right? So, yeah. so that... Uh, believe me, my eyes are opened and I'm willing yeah. to listen. What my experience with virtual reality is, is that my kids put a headset on me in the living room one time where <laughs> I was supposed to be in somewhere batting away some balls yeah. or something. And they are shooting with their phone a selfie oh. of how, how dumb does dad look? Like <laughs> the, the purpose is to make me look like, a you know, um, yeah. like I'm completely helpless. Yeah. There's applications I certainly can see educationally or in preparation for underwater work or being on the moon. But I guess I see it in the form of readying me for a real experience in some ways. But like with all technology, there are as many people working for the bad purposes of something where greed and other things sort of co-opt the best possible use of something. Yeah. Does that make yes. sense? That totally makes sense. And I mean, it speaks to this, the fact that we call all this technology, this umbrella of emerging technology. And just recently, as I, I was wondering, like, what do they mean when they say emerging? And, and also, who is they when I say they? But emerging technology is basically technology that doesn't have a predetermined function. So it's up to us as a society, exactly as you say, to decide what we're going to do with it. And so it's my really deep, deep, deep belief that if creative people 
do not become part of this conversation around what is tech going to be used for, then, and I've said this before, but that that's tech will be dangerous and it will be lazy. And the fact is that we have to get interdisciplinary engagement around emerging technologies or, or it will just kind of die a death and none of us will really know or it will be quite damaging, have quite damaging effect on us. So there's this idea, there's this artist called Stephanie Dinkins and she talks about herself as an accidental technologist. So she's an artist that fell into tech and stayed there because her voice is needed. And that's, I want you, Pat, to be an accidental technologist. I want Amanda to be one. I want to be an, I think of myself as an accidental technologist because my goodness, does this industry need us? It needs creative people to be there at the inception. So um, I implore you to become one. Okay. Well, I'm accepting your invitation to be open to that idea. And hey, hey, that's different. You're accepting an invitation to be open to the idea. I'm I'm asking you to become one. Okay. An accidental technologist. Okay. I'm in. Okay, good. I'm in. I, the, the, I've made the commitment on the show. People can come up. My <laughs> my new card is going to say accidental uh, technologist. Um, you, But you're also an artist. And so it, this is a really interesting crossroads where you've got, you have technology and art sharing the ride equally in many ways. And you're using surrealist mm-hmm. ideas in for representation and reality. So tell me how unique that is in terms of people understanding your point of view and who you are in, in, in each of those worlds. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question because it's hard in, in that it has, in a tech context, I often feel like I'm explaining myself. And that's happening less and less as uh, more people, you know, the fact that you mentioned Dita Wolf, she's just a fantastic example of just top of her game, creative person working in the tech industry. But I think that often there's a whole load of assumptions when you uh, work in AR and VR in terms of your education, in terms of your background, in terms of what you can technically do. And actually, it takes people a moment to really realize the value of kind of a creative mind in that industry. And once they get it, they completely, completely get it. Um, but it's it's definitely been a large part of my role in other organizations in the past is just kind of getting people on board. And that is from a feminist perspective, too. I feel like I've spent a huge amount of my career getting people on board with particular ideas. But if you put the time in with people and you bring them with you, then it's golden on the other side. But it can take work and it can take time and it can sometimes be hard personally. Well, especially when you are making new territory for people. to They, they want to label something and they want to say, where does this fit in my current understanding? I, I guess watching a short documentary on Beatty Wolf, which was called Orange Juice for the Ears, uh, there were mm-hmm. so many little moments where I just have, I had these ahas about, yes. oh, I see. This is not something that I fully understood because it wasn't in my purview. I didn't, yeah. Yeah. and it takes that sometimes for us. I, I think it, totally. in your work in bringing up the stories of women from the past, and there's so many, but who are the people who stand out to you that are not? Amelia Earhart and people who people kind of jump to, like, you know, yeah. who are the, you know, Ada Lovelace's or the, the, you know, the mathematicians and the programmers that, yeah. who do you celebrate in your look into these people right now list? Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you mentioned Ada Lovelace because my, my lovely dog is called Ada after Ada Lovelace. So yeah, big fan of Ada Lovelace, but it's wonderful that we've got um, Ada Lovelace day and there's lots of celebrations around her, but she's brilliant. So in terms of, in terms of who inspires me the most now in my work, and I'm answering your question a little bit differently, 
But Amanda and I were talking previously about the fact there are so many incredible women working in VR at the moment. And they have been doing that historically for quite a long time. And often in tech, we go way, way far back and we think, oh, there's no women there. Or they're the women that were there very, very early in terms of the coders, the human computers, the people that history has recently kind of uplifted. And so for me right now, Laurie Anderson is just a huge inspiration because she has done a lot of work in VR. But at the same time, she gets that the sweet spot with VR is completely collapsing ideas and mediums and pulling from a piece of music, a very strange quote from years ago, a completely interesting visceral experience that she had in the park. And then she weaves them all together in these incredible lectures. I just watched the Northern lectures, which is why I'm like big in my head right now. But that's what inspired me. It's like women like Laurie Anderson who are able to bring all sorts of cultural moments together, collapse them, and then kick you in the stomach with them and it makes you feel like, oh my gosh, I want to be better. I want to be like Laurie. And so she's super, super inspiring. But I know that wasn't your answer in terms of women from history, but I can do that one as well if you want. Sure, go for it. I sure? Okay. One of my favorite women in history, and it's a bit of a sad story, but it's a powerful one, is a woman called Irina Sendler. I don't know if you've heard of her, and she um, was a social worker. And during the Holocaust, she would go into concentration camps dressed as a mechanic with a big burlap sack and a, and a toolbox. And she would go and she would smuggle out Jewish infants and children and she would smuggle them out of the camp in her burlap sack and in her toolbox. And she saved hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children this way. And I, I know that she's not linked to tech and she's you know, not necessarily linked to our conversation, but her bravery and her, her true like heroicism or sheroicism, I think about her every single day. It's like every day she got up with her, with her box and with her burn-up sack and she went and risked her life and did that and changed the lives of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of children. So I always give a shout out to Irina Sender because, wow, what was it? Yeah, that's an extraordinary story. And I love the word shiro. I, I don't know if people yeah. heard you say it, but a shiro is a really great word and definitely something that we sort of fall into the trap of using words like mankind. We, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. we realize what it does mean, but we also don't realize the damage it does to, yeah. to not change things to, I guess, a more human perspective as opposed to a gender-specific perspective. Yeah, language so matters. And we we know that and we say it all the time. But then you really look back and you think about as you grew up and the messages that are being sent out, like even when I would, apologies if language is slightly different in the UK basis, but like when we have the original key or the original document, we call it the master key or the master document. And it's like, actually, even those things, it's just like this implicit, sense that women are other and that we deviate from the norm um and so in language well no when i say stuff like shiro i get a bit of a laugh but at the end of the day it really hammers home this this idea that actually we're not other we're not the deviation we are in this together and so language is super interesting to keep an eye on like that whether it's history or her story i think the key word is story yes keeping the stories alive i think about mother's day and which I think is should be celebrated all year round, every day of the year, because it really is mm-hmm. the most important, pivotal job of building self-confidence. Mm-hmm. But there are many people who are not mothers. Yeah. And I always thought Hallmark should have a section called Other's Day Cards <laughs> for, all those, <laughs> for, for people who really should be celebrated. And I only say that 
with a wink and some humor, which is to say others aren't outcasts. Oftentimes others are the mirror we need to reflect ourselves in to learn more about ourselves. And there's just so much where it comes to integrity, where it comes to ideas, where it comes to humanity, all of those things Mm -hmm. are not about your gender. They're not about your race. They're not about your age. All of those things we would hope would be built into our DNA. And Uh yet from when we're a little kid, when we don't think about those things, we learn it from all those people, from our relatives, from our friends. It is always changing and altering who we are. And it's hard to unlearn for people. Sometimes they go, oh, that's just how we did it. That's just how I grew up. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best thing. I sure hope. I mean, I'm also in, by the way, in addition to being an accidental technologist, I, (laughs) I, I don't hesitate in saying that I'm a feminist because I really Mm -hmm. do believe in women having an equal attention. And I've never liked when people say women's basketball or whenever they, whenever they put the word with it, it feels as if somehow it's like the difference between golf and miniature golf. It's it's not, you don't need athletes and athletes. Yes, we have physical differences or different strengths, but also Mm -hmm. if we could see women's brains or we could see their hearts instead of it being a strictly objectified advertising, it would be a different and more beautiful world as opposed to something that has been constructed by men. Yes, absolutely. Oh, good. I got a a (laughs) fellow feminist hand raise on that. No, it's funny. I think men have a hard time calling themselves that. It's interesting. I live in the UK now, but I worked in America before. And particularly in American context, yeah, this word feminist has, I walked into it quite naively, just assuming everybody feminist, you know, yep, it's a piece of our lexicon that's just very much with. And that wasn't, I had to do a, a lot of hard work with friends, you know, American friends, male friends to kind of understand like, why, what's this issue with this word? And I learned a lot about, um, the other stuff that people seem to think it meant. But yeah, I'm so pleased, Pat, that you said it and that people will hear you saying that and that we can work to demystify that word because it's a real shame that it's being taken in, in such strange ways. Yeah, and I think the word shame is a good a good word because it is something that Brene Brown talks quite a bit about. I don't know if you're familiar with her work, mm-hmm. but but how we behave so differently when we feel guilty or when we feel... Yes. There's an awkwardness that puts us on the defense. Yeah. And I just think that if people understood the power of vulnerability better, yeah. then we would be headed to better communication in everything that we do, as opposed mm-hmm. to the buildup or the bravado of putting a wall around the fear of feeling or yeah. empathizing with other people. Which is similar to what we were saying earlier about competition, right? Like when you are in those modes, if you're feeling... Yeah, shameful, on edge, jealous. You're not going to produce your best ideas. And so we've done a nice full circle. Alice, I'm so fascinated by what you do. I love that you hitch your wagon to arts and activism and technology and education and and using arts and culture to, to engage people in women's history. So is there a place that they can find out more about you or follow you? Would you mind sharing that? Yeah, so my Twitter handle is at Alice Rowe, and my surname is W-R-O-E, Rowe. And then the Her Story website is www.herstoryuk.org. And so you can find everything that you need there. But yeah, Twitter is where I do most of my musings. 
That's where you do most of your twitting? Yeah, most of my twitting. All of my twitting, in fact, happens on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> Just so they know, this is not virtual reality. This is not AI. This is the actual AW, Alice Rowe, <laughs> yeah. here with us today. And look her up and find out not about her past, but about the future she's building for all of us. Oh, what a great outro. Thank you so much. I'm so happy. Yeah. Alice, you're the best. Oh, you're the best. I feel really happy about this chat. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Take a moment to subscribe and you will always have an invitation to join us for more creative conversation and a weekly spark of inspiration. Our show is a production of Sweetwood Creative in Austin, Texas, under Wizbank producer Amanda Rosenberg, with editing by the surgeon of sound, Casey Franco. Our original music theme was written and sung by Maya Sharp, with additional production support and technical wizardry from Delilah Lovejoy, Tony Deo, Tucker Hazel, and Diane Johansson. Please feel free to share your input or dash off a review on social media to help grow our creative community. You can find us on Instagram at Pat Hazel with two L's on Facebook or visiting our website at creativityincaptivity.fun. That's right. It's dot fun because dot com is not fun. Cheers. Staring at an empty page, stepping on a ghostlit stage, a circus of un-